Open your Bibles to Psalm 19. It's a pinnacle chapter in the Bible that is about the Bible. We've been talking about the Bible for a couple weeks, and I hadn't anticipated being in Psalm 19 this long, but there's a lot there to cover, and I think it's important for our church to engage the powerful book that we possess and what it does for us in our spiritual lives. Let me begin by reading verses 7 through 11 just to get us started. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. Um. I think it was a week and a half ago, I, I sat um, with my wife and we went and, you know, we're, we're in our early 40s and whatever that means, you know, um, still young-ish and anyway, but it's at seasons of uh, life where you sort of come to look at your finances and you look at your um, investments and you look at your future and you start to think in your young 40s I'm not always going to be in my 40s uh, yesterday I was in my 30s right so now soon I'll be you know older and as I as we sat with a financial planner together about a week and a half ago we just began to review our investments and where we're going and as the conversation builds you begin to say man you know 25 years from now we'll be in our 60s and so you begin to think what's life going to look like when we're in our 60s and as we were talking to this gentleman who is a believer and a great guy uh, we begin to resonate on a couple key principles in the context of talking about money we begin to also talk about working and how long do I want to work and when would I want to retire and one thing he and I were resonating very well on is the idea that even if I could walk away from my job when I'm 65, 66, 67, I might not want to. Now, part of my situation is I'm called to the ministry, so I believe that I'm supposed to be preaching and doing something like this until I die. But uh, part of it also is just the clear principle that, you know, working and being active, whether you're getting paid for it or not, is helpful and is even physically healthy because it keeps your mind active, it keeps your body active, it keeps you living with purpose, and that oftentimes helps people to uh, stay encouraged and to physically be stronger. So you, he and I were resonating on that. But secondly, we resonated on this, and I think this was, was a key idea. Now he's, um, you know, more of a financially set person, you know, than I would be, but, you know, we're both resonating on the same idea, and it's that when you invest and make your investments in life, whether it's monetary or just other investments in terms of love and relationships, really what you're looking towards isn't where you're going to be when you're 65 as much as what's life going to be like when you're on your deathbed. 
What, what's your situation going to be like when you're laying there? Are you going to be alone or are you going to have people around you that love you and that know Jesus? And so my goal that I was resonating with this man on as fellow believers suddenly is this. I want to have a sweet time of fellowship on my deathbed. That's my goal. It's a deathbed goal. And the fellowship will be something like this. I've got perhaps children around me. Whether I make it to 65 or not, it doesn't matter. It could be tomorrow I'm on my deathbed or it could be when I'm 85. I don't know, but do I have children around me that believe? Do, do I have grandchildren around me that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that are genuinely converted as Christians? Uh, am I a believer at that point? Not that you can lose your salvation, but there's a lot of people that start out and they think they're a believer and then they go apostate they just sell out you know am i filled with guilt do i have unreconciled relationships what does it look like at the deathbed scene that that's what supersedes your roth ira that's what supersedes what's in the bank account right it's the idea that you around your deathbed want to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs together at your deathbed, you're not worried about how much savings you have. You're, you're, you're not wanting to read that report. You're wanting to read Psalm 23. You're wanting to read Romans 8. You're wanting to read Re Revelation 21 at that point, right? That's the far better way to be day-to-day -day in your investments. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't save money and, and put things aside for the future. You should. That's why we were in that meeting. However, more important than that, is investing the word of God into your heart and into the hearts of your children and into the lives of your relationships and into the lives of people perhaps that you're just coming in contact with providentially in God's plan for your life. That's the, the better investment. The better, the better portfolio for you to create is sowing seed with the word of God. How do you get that sort of sweet deathbed moment that you're investing towards? Well, you do it very similarly to how you invest or should be investing money, and that is that you invest a little bit along in routine, regularly, with the right seed that's going to produce the right crop in the future. Psalm 19 tells us what kind of seed we have what kind of powerful book that we have. And my challenge this morning, my big idea this morning comes out of verse 11. Look at this. Look at verse 11. The psalmist says, Moreover, by them, this is the word of God, by the, the precepts, the laws, the teachings of Scripture, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, that great reward is talking future, but I want you to get the big idea. The big idea is that to experience the great reward or the great payoff of sowing the seed of the word of God for the future, you've got to experience the word of God as great reward right now. For you to have a sweet end to your life, you have to invest the word of God and enjoy the joy of the word of God now. So you live the joy of the word of God now 
and it pays off because that's the seed sowing in your heart now and it pays off in the future. That's the big idea. And my job is to show you from Scripture that the Scripture says of itself that it will transform your life from sad to glad. It'll fill your heart with reward. We learned last week in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And, um, you know, just to sort of recast the book of uh, the chapter Psalm 19, I want to show you verses 1 through 6. Again, that's general revelation. That's God speaking through creation. We talked about that. God's declaring his glory every day to everyone all the time, and he's providing accountability to everyone by, by the sheer nature that silently but very powerfully God is speaking through what he has created. Secondly, you have special revelation that begins at verse 7. And special revelation is the inspired and errant word of God that was written down for us. And Christians are the ones who are illumined by the Holy Spirit to see the glory of this book. So, verse 7 turns a corner from general revelation to special revelation. This is talking about the Bible. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It, it means it's sufficient. It's everything you need to survive in life and to grow in life. And the second part of verse 7, it revives the soul. It, it lifts us up when we're down. It's, it's the stable footing and foundation to stand on in truth. It assumes this verse is, assumes you're going to be downcast at times and you need the word of God to lift you up. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise a simple. We talked about last week that, look, there's a lot of people who are very, very intelligent who don't know a whole lot about anything in terms of reality. And the Word of God gives us the right worldview about where we come from, where, we, where we're going when we die, and who we are and who God is, etc. Now we're to verse 8. And in your outline, it's, it's this. Special revelation, God reveals himself through the Bible. And then the next point is God's word is moral direction. Now, when I say this, please do not hear me to be saying that the Bible is a book of do's and don'ts in terms of a performance, religion-based Christianity. I've never believed that, and I don't preach that. The Bible does have clear commands but it's all cast in the context of saving faith and having a relationship with the true God who has spoken and who gives us a clear pathway to live our lives. So when verse 8 is speaking about precepts that are right, precepts of the Lord that are right, the word right here is speaking about a concrete path that we are supposed to walk. The word right could be translated straight or a clear path. C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote this book, it's C.S. Lewis Reflections on the Psalms. I um, grabbed it off my shelf again this week. Um, regarding this, C.S. Lewis said, their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. This idea of being on clear, sure footing. I mean, many of you have hiked around Alaska, no doubt, and you've been at points on slippery slopes, even in situations you go, you know, if this goes the wrong way, it's not going to go well at all. 
Lasky can be very unforgiving. And then if you're, or let's just make it, let's make it day to day. You've been, maybe you don't, maybe you drive better than I do. You've, you know, you, you weren't paying attention. You hit the brake, you're going to the roundabout and you're going a little bit too fast and your car's doing this. I know that's just me. But anyway, you're doing that. But then when, when your car regains tread and traction and you're going to be okay and not hit somebody, you're glad about that, right? And that's the idea here. It's the idea that the word of God brings sure footing in your life. If you've ever starved yourself from being in the word of God, as I have before, then you know what it's like to recover from that, get back into the word of God, get your heart back exhilarated in scripture, backgrounded in what is right, what is good, what is profitable, what is bad, what's right thinking, what's wrong thinking. The word of God brings that car from a careening slide to solid gripping of the road. That's the idea of verse eight. Moral direction. There's you know, back in the time when this was written, the pagan religions that were surrounding Israel to the north, you have the Ashereth, which was the goddess of fertility. There are all kinds of statues from Syria and places that have been archaeologically dug up that match with the Old Testament idol worship of, of that idol statue of a woman. And really, it was representing that sexual immorality was the answer to life. I know, that's a pagan concept, right? That's not brought forward. It is. It's the same thing. Baal was the, uh, you know, the god of weather. It was the god of we're praying for rain, and he's the one that's going to supply the rain we need to make the crops grow. You know what that is? That is the paganism of believing that material wealth will satisfy your life because crops growing is the same idea of having wealth, having security, being able to feed people. You have the power of money represented in the worship of Baal. Thirdly, you have back then, the, to the south, you have this, the, the worship of the sun or Ra. This was the, the Egyptian cult religion. And that's the idea of worshiping nature. There are people who are bound up in naturalism, the agnostics, the atheists who say, look, there's nothing more. We just have to figure out life and weather patterns through science and through art and through secular humanism. And we can sort of control our reality by figuring it out, and becoming our own gods. And that's that form of paganism. Now, all of those forms of paganism can be found on our temple TV sets, and you can uh, be taught by the priests and priestesses of Hollywood and find these forms of paganism being promoted today. Sex, wealth, control, secular humanism, denial of God. All those things are promoted all the time, and that's false religion. Nowadays, most often the promoters of those things are vampires and zombies, but, you know, regardless, it's just... It's just regular promotion of what is false. And that's why we got to come back to the word of God to tell us what is true. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Look at this. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I want to pick up on that word, rejoicing the heart. When you think of the law, do you typically think of the word of God in terms of it being a law as something that makes you 
happy or something that causes you to rejoice. Uh, I think a lot of times we're thankful for the, the law because it gives us a moral standard of how not to get in trouble. You know, it's holding us back from something. But does it take you all the way forward where you are rejoicing? And again, I've got to read something. It was a, a humorous um, little blurb from this book from C.S. Lewis and how he talked about this. He said, you know, this to me is very mysterious, talking about the law as something that gives us joy. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, I can understand that a man can and must respect these statutes and try to obey them and assent to them in his heart. But it is very hard to find how they can be, so to speak, delicious, how they can exhilarate. Let's stop there for a second. I mean, look down at verse 10. The word of God is sweeter than honey. I mean, something delicious. Back then in the Old Testament, honey, by the way, is, uh, you know, it, it, it's not what we think of in our sugarized culture. They didn't have A&W root beer back then, right? I mean, it's the idea of like when you're at a camping trip and you're eating power bars that taste like leather, right? And you're, you're going along and then, and you're thirsty and you fill your canteen and get some water and you're refreshed when you're exhausted. That's the idea. It's, it's the idea of you haven't eaten well on the camping trip and then somebody breaks out the eggs and bacon over the campfire. That's the, that's the rush that we're talking about here, okay? So how does that Thou shalt not, thou shalt not turn into that kind of excitement in your life. That's what Lewis is talking about. How can be delicious? How can they exhilarate? If this is difficult um, at any time, it is doubly so when obedience to either is opposed to some strong and perhaps in itself innocent desire. In other words, we have either, we even have innocent desires for things and sometimes oftentimes sinful desires for things so how can we how can thou shalt not compete with these desires that's who's bringing up a man held back by his unfortunate previous marriage to some lunatic or criminal who never dies from some woman whom he faithfully loves or a hungry man left alone without money in a shop filled with the smell and sight of new bread, roasting coffee or fresh strawberries, can these find the prohibition of adultery or of theft at theft at all like honey? They may obey, they may still respect the statute, but surely it could be more aptly compared to the dentist's forceps or the front line than to anything enjoyable and sweet. Listen, let's come back to the big idea. For you to be investing towards the deathbed investment, that might sound weird, but towards the investment where you are going to have a healthy crop of influence, where the word of God has influenced people you love at the end of your life, you have to move from the word of God just being something that keeps you back from sin to the word of God being something that rejoices your heart. That's where you've got to move to. If you're going to get into the word of God regularly, it's got to become honey to you. It's got to become worth more to you than all the money in the world. You want what the Bible does for your heart more than you want physical satisfaction or financial stability. The word of God has to be what rejoices your heart. And when it does, it influences other people as well. And it satisfies your life. 
Now let's take this New Testament for a second. How do we get to it being like gold and honey? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where Paul is talking about Jews viewing the word of God as a code for morality. And he calls that a letter that kills and verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 calls it a ministry of death. A ministry of death. It's what John Calvin, he said, Jews without faith, they viewed the ministry of Moses merely by itself and a living according to the letter. So you see that in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 he says for the letter kills but the spirit gives life look at verse 7 now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses face because of its glory which was being brought to an end will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory verse 9 for it was glory in the ministry of condemnation the ministry of righteousness far exceeded seat it in glory so what Paul's doing here is he's actually bringing up a misapplication of the Old Testament law the Old Testament law when it was obeyed out of moral obedience or out of some obedience code or just externally without faith it really does become a ministry of death or a ministry of condemnation because you're trying to law keep to stay in bounds and you keep falling short and you're circling the drain in despair and discouragement and he's cutting through that and saying no 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 in the Old Testament law there was glory because it kept you from being condemned. It condemned your sin, but it is the law of God that is the tutor that leads us to Christ, as Paul put it in another place. And so he's talking about the law being glorious, and he's going back to the scene where Moses, remember Moses, when he received the law of God, actually was communing with the Lord on the mountaintop, and he had the glory of God on his face as he was communing with God in faith. I mean, could you imagine talking to God in that context? And then when he came down, um, he had a veil over his face because the glory would be wearing off and he didn't want that to be seen. So Paul is picking up on all of that and he brings it up, look at verse 12. It says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. In other words, there's glory in the word of God. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Now stop there. What Paul's saying is, is that when the law is read in an incomplete way, as a code for moral obedience alone, if it's read out of the context of knowing the Lord, when it's read in a way that only condemns and there's no saving grace on the other end of the story, it's, it's as if you have a, the same veil problem that Moses had where he's like, look, you know, the glory from being up with Christ in relationship, it's wearing off, so I've got to cover that. He's using that metaphor and saying to the, to the Jews in the New Testament, there's a veil over your heart if you're not connecting this by faith with Christ. So how do we make the word of God 
taste really good, taste better than what feeds appetites, taste better than financial security. How does that happen? Well, the New Testament clarifies that as we look at verse 16. It says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, once you come to faith in Christ, verse 18 talks about how you grow in Christ through seeing the glory of Christ as you study the word of God. Look at verse 18. We all, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one de degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The issue is this, it's, you know, the glory of God is shining brightly and we find it reflected through the word of God. As we look into the word of God by faith, the Lord is transforming us from the inside out from one level of glory to the next. Let me ask this, do you rejoice at the word of God? I mean, you could go to the word of God out of habit. You could go to the word of God out of duty. You could go to the word of God out of guilt. You could just go to the word of God in terms of listening to preaching, but ignoring the word of God otherwise. You could go to the word of God out of academics. You could go to the word of God out of pride, you know, to know more of the Bible than somebody else. You could be sort of the, the king of the hill in your mind in terms of what you know and trying to push other people off the hill. Um, you could go to the word of God. Again, out of any number of wrong reasons. But the reason that you should go to the word of God isn't out of tradition or isn't because you're you know, part of a family history of people who loved the Bible. The reason you should go to the Bible is to feed, is to, is to take something in your heart that's going to warm it up and give you hope where you can find joy. And oftentimes, and I have found this to be the case in my life, God will strip out everything in my life that I have tried to hang on to for joy so that all that I have left is this. That's it. And that's oftentimes exactly where God wants me to be. I've read the word of God out of, you know, sort of, uh, performance and trying to get through it or, or master certain things. But God wants us to be desperate, needy, helpless, humble Christians who go to the Bible and feed to the point where we begin to have joy welling up in our hearts. You got to get to that point. When you're doing that, when your heart crosses into that realm, where you're reading for joy, you're experiencing joy. I'm not telling you it's easy to get there. I'm not saying this is an overnight fix, but when you discipline yourself in the word of God and you're in regular routine and you're doing it, suddenly joy is there and that's when you'll have influence. In your own heart, you're, you're investing for the future and you're investing the word of God into the lives of others. You go, yeah, but I'm so lame in terms of reaching people with the word of God. I can't, I never teach. I don't disciple. I don't witness. I, I, I fail with giving the word to my kids. Listen, if you do this in your own life, you will by, you know, by just the fruit of that, 
discipline, you will influence people powerfully for the kingdom of God. Because people will see it. They'll know about it. They'll hear it in the way you think and talk and act. Finding joy in the Bible is finding joy in Jesus. And it influences people. Now, what does this look like? Let's skip ahead to 2 Corinthians 4. This is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry, this is the ministry of the gospel, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. For we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying, look, I'm not going to quit. I don't lose heart. I keep going. Why? Because my whole ministry is tethered to the Bible. So I'm not doing anything underhandedly. I'm not doing anything by false pretense. I'm just tethered to Scripture. That's Paul. It's hopefully all of us. He said, by open statement of the truth, I'm just commending myself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Why do people reject the Scripture? Look at verse 3. This is the state that people are in before they're saved. This is where the joy can't pierce the great divide. It it can't rejoice a person's heart who's in the state of verse 3. Look at this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now again, if you'll remember back in Psalm 19, the word of God enlightens the eyes. Remember that? The word of God is what God uses to illuminate our hearts to see that joy can be found here. Treasure can be found here. Wisdom can be found here. Moral direction can be found here. Um, Sure footing can be found in the word of God. But before the word of God illumines a person's heart, they are captivated by Satan and satanic paganism, self-worship, fleshly desires, financial security, materialism, naturalism. And the, the satanic religions are captivating people until the word of God opens blind eyes. I, I've put it this way. It's like, you know, the gospel song is very beautiful once you have ears to hear it. Satan, when, when the gospel is spoken and you know, the glories of Christ are, are put on display through preaching or through a person's life or testimony, when someone's witnessing to someone else and Satan has put the blinders on, or it's, it's as if the ears are being distorted, like Satan is able to turn a distor- distortion switch and make the gospel sound ugly. You ever, I mean, we've had this happen here before where we've been worshiping and the wind is blowing and somehow our sound system goes bad and it's this, you know, awful, awful sound. We hate to bring those moments up in the church history, but, but I mean, it's a great illustration of what is going on in people's hearts when they hear the gospel. Hey, you need to be forgiven of sin. What do people say? I don't have any sin. <laughs> it's where Jesus is talking to, you know, the Pharisees. He's saying, you know, you're trusting in your traditions. You're trusting in your family heritage. And they're going, no, our father's Abraham. They're, he's going, no, your father is the devil. 
That's John 8. You know, you need the, you, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. And they say, we don't got to be free. We're not enslaved to anything. That's the distortion switch dynamic happening in unbelievers' hearts. They don't understand it yet. The veil's over their mind. They're blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's in the Im- who is the image of God. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. What did Paul lean on for people to be delivered? Himself? Was he a personality cult leader? No. Was he anything special? No. He just relied on the word of God, the gospel. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now look at verse 6. This is when the lights turn on in someone's heart. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What happens is people see Jesus in a new and real way, in a saving way, in a relationship way. Now, I've never seen a genuine image in my mind of Jesus Christ, but, you know, my heart, by conviction, embraces how Jesus is is displayed gloriously in scripture my heart sees christ savors christ knows christ loves christ lives for christ gives to christ why because god has by his holy spirit revealed a vision clearly to my heart of who this jesus is and he's lovelier and more wonderful and more precious than anything else this world can offer amen He is. He's beautiful to our hearts because light has shone in. I I read it earlier, but Psalm 119 speaks of this effect. You know, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. This is where the, the psalmist has moved from just obedience to love. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 129 of Psalm 119, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Look at this one, verse 130. The unfolding of your words give, gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Look at, I mean, it's, it's like, it, what I love about Psalm 119 is how study of the word of God turns so personal and so desperate. Look at, Look at verse 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do you see the passion and pathos and emotion that's bound up in Bible study? It's a little bit different than just, you know, being regular in the Word. This, if you want investment, if you want future, if you want people to know Christ, if you want your children to see, smell, and know that you are a believer, you got to get there. You got to get here in your relationship with Christ. Look, I'm first to the altar in this. I'm telling you, I'm just bleeding my heart out to you, hoping that I can help you as I am being helped by this challenge. There's got to be a passion to know Christ for people to believe the authenticity of who he is. And it comes from clinging to the testimonies. 
of Scripture. It's loving the God who has spoken and is speaking to us. You got to move from just reading and knowing the Word of God and what it keeps you back from to rejoicing, enjoying in your relationship with the God who has revealed himself in scripture. That's the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, verse eight of chapter 19. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. By the way, fear here is a synonym for the word of God. There's, all of these are synonyms. The law, the the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, and then verse 9, the fear of the Lord, the effect of the word of God, the gravitas of the word of God is clean and it's enduring forever. It'll be here for a while, right? It's not going anywhere. Why is the word of God perennial? Why does the word of God not go out of style? Why is the word of God quoted all over the place by believers and unbelievers? Because it's the words of God. It's enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together so in the outline it cleanses the conscience God's word teaches reverence God's word provides holiness God's word satisfies the heart verse 10 look at this much more much to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold I heard one preacher put it this way regarding this verse uh, it's even much fine gold even much fine gold, even much fine gold. I mean, you know, it's, it's like this is the creme de la creme of having money. It's having a whole lot of it and having the highest kind of money, right? And uh, it's perfect money. It's, it's right, you, you have dollar signs rolling in your head. You go, wow, I've got all this stuff. I've got all the security. I've, I've got this future. Now I can be happy. Now I can find peace. Now I can rest because I'm wealthy. And the Bible's calling the bluff on all of that, saying for you to find peace, satisfaction, and joy in God is the only way. That's, that's far greater than anything you could have or possess I mean, how many people have ended their life who have a lot of wealth, right? I mean, you know that that's not what creates satisfaction. And the idea of reaching for your statement or your financial account or what you have before you would reach for the Bible is really, once you know what the Word of God is and means and can do for you, it's insane to reach for a financial statement before the Scripture. It's like a little child who says, I want the penny instead of the dime because the penny's bigger looking than the dime. It's to reach for the treasure that's found in the Scripture. In the Scripture, it guides us to be financially prudent and smart and wise, and, and it will direct us to be a good steward of our resources. I believe in that. However, you go to the scripture. That's what helps us. That's what satisfies us. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Well, it moves on. Verse 11, we've touched on all that. Moreover, by, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. One of the great and greatest rewards of the Bible is that it keeps you from sin. I just remember my own testimony that even as an unbeliever who was rebelling and 
not obeying my parents, I still was affected by the power of Scripture through youth ministry, through my parents, through them loving the Word of God, because the Scripture warns you of a judgment that will come if you die before believing. The scripture warns you of outcomes of how you can mess your life up, how there's judgments, how there are governing officials who can put you in prison for doing things if you're violating even what scripture foundationally communicates. And so the word of God, it does govern the society even over unbelievers by informing the conscience but how much more so for the believer? I'll tell you what, it, it should inform how you relate to people, who you bond with, who you give your heart to, who you keep your heart from, how you interact, how you live your life, being um, ethical, being moral. It will protect you and guard you from horrible and horrendous outcomes that can take place in your life. If you've ever watched someone digress who's close to you, who was at this point, and they, you know, you remember, they were so well off, they had everything going for them, and then they made this decision, and this decision, and this, and they, you know, and they turn out, and they're, they're in prison now, or, or even this person now is homeless. This person now is, you know, and we, we grieve for those people, and it's not hopeless, right? The Word of God can, can transform a person's life, and they can turn the corner, but those kinds of dramatic digressions take place. You know, it's a, it's a family, it's a unit. How did that person, you know, cheat on, you know, his spouse or, you know, how did that person do that to the family and, and, and leave the children and leave everyone? How did that happen? You know, and it's because a, a person is suddenly vulnerable, not under the word of God, not informing his or her mind of truth. The Word of God warns us from sin. It keeps us from sin. We're going to talk about that next week. And in keeping them, there's great reward. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that the Word of God is what it says it is and it will reward you greatly? That's the question. Do you believe that? Let me put it to you this way. Do you believe, and maybe this is the way to get there, you know, from here. You know, how do you get to the I'm rejoicing in the word of God mode? Well, maybe you go back to the foundation of your salvation. Do you believe that it was the seed of the word of God that originally entered in your heart and originated saving faith in your life? Do you believe that that was the Bible, the Holy Spirit using the Bible to save you in the first place, to change the course of your life and change the course of your eternity. Do you believe that? I was looking at a couple people in church history whose life was changed in an instant by the word of God. St. Augustine, he was uh, raised by a Christian mother, but was rebellious, was immoral, had a child out of wedlock before being married. He was a hedonist involved in immorality and he read Romans 13 13 I, I as the story goes it was you know some children were, were singing a song on the other side of a of a of a wall and there was sort of a park garden scene and they were singing tola lege tola lege tola lege and it means take up and read and somehow in the providence of God he opened a bible at that moment and turned to Romans 13 13 and again he was this person who was a uh, sexually immoral addict 
and he read Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He read that and got saved. Martin Luther, years and years later, who was an Augustinian monk out of, you know, St. Augustine becoming the Bishop of Hippo, and then years and years and years and years later, we're talking about, you know, the 5th century to now the 1500s. Um, Martin Luther, he read, and again, he's an Augustinian monk. He was in performance-based um, religion. He was trying to earn his way and earn the righteousness of God, and he couldn't do it, and he was screaming at himself and locked up in a, in a sort of a, a monk's cell, terrorized by religion, and he read Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Suddenly the lights came on, he realized he wasn't earning his righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to him, given to him outside of himself, that is the saving righteousness. He was, he was saved. Jonathan Edwards, raised in a Christian home. His grandfather was a pastor in a line of pastoral families and, and love and all of this. And he's, um, you know, in the 1700s in our country and in the Northeast. And Jonathan Edwards, he turned from just being a good student to being a worshiper by reading 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Became a brilliant, but most importantly, just a believer at that moment. And then a pastor. I was reading about this um, one man as we close. Uh, his name is Tokichi Ichi. Never heard of him before. There's a book written by him. I haven't read it yet, but I'm compelled to after reading some quotes and some biographical things. He was converted before his execution in Japan in 1918. He was ultimately hanged for murder in Tokyo in 1918. And John Piper um, picked up on this man's story and he tells what happened um, to this hardened criminal. And this is Piper talking about it. He said, he had been sent to prison more than 20 times. And I was reading a little bit about his biography, by the way. As a child, he was involved in gambling, and he just went digressed from there, and his parents were involved in some things. It just got worse and worse and worse. And kind of a, a, a series of bad circumstances that set this man up to ultimately be a murderer. He had been sent to prison more than 20 times and was known as being cruel as a tiger. On one occasion, after attacking a prison official, he was gagged and bound and his body was suspended in such a way that, quote, my toes barely reached the ground. But he stubbornly refused to say he was sorry for what he had done. Just before being sentenced to death, Tokichi was sent a New Testament by two Christian missionaries, two women, Miss West and Miss McDonald. After a visit from Miss West, he began to read the story of Jesus' trial and execution. His attention was riveted by the sentence, quote, from Scripture, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is what he says. This sentence transformed my life. Think about deathbed moment, right? This is it. He said, my life was transformed by that sentence, Tokichi shares, quote, I stopped, I was stabbed in the heart as if by a five-inch nail. What did that verse reveal to me? 
Should I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I do not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart, I believed. Is that what happened to you? It is. If you are a saved, regenerated Christian, we all were stabbed to the heart, maybe through a series of stabbings, and then we believed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time in your word. Thank you for this.